You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer powered, listener supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Herhusky Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. Later in the program, WFHB News continues its coverage on Lake Monroe. How healthy is it and how long will it survive? On Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post investigate. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, survey says scam on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment produced by Richard Fish. But first, the latest edition of Deep Dive. This is Deep Dive. WFHB and Limestone Post investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. We are looking into the Lake Monroe watershed and the water quality. This week, we will look into pollutants in the watershed. According to the Friends of Lake Monroe Watershed Management Plan, pollutants such as fertilizer, animal manure, sediment, and septic system leakage wash into the lake when it rains. Maggie Sullivan, Watershed Coordinator for the Friends of Lake Monroe, discussed how sediment erosion threatens the lifespan of the dam, which we depend upon for drinking water. So rivers and streams by nature move sediment. That is just part of the natural system is it takes that sediment and moves it downstream. And it's actually a good thing. Uh, It rebuilds the deltas on coastlines. It creates these marshy areas, great habitat. But when we come through and we build a dam to create a reservoir like Lake Monroe, then that sediment, 90 some percent of it gets trapped in the lake. And that is inevitable. That is just part of the way it works. But the uh, if we can minimize the amount of sediment coming in, that will maximize the lifespan of the lake. Lake Monroe is the largest lake in Indiana. It really is huge. It's very deep. So we're not in a... Uh, an immediate threat of sediment filling it in. But like we said, we really need to be thinking long-term. This is our drinking water source. We need it to be here as long as possible. And so we need to work on minimizing the amount of sediment that comes in. So sediment comes in through the main tributaries that come into the lake. So there's North Fork Salt Creek, Middle Fork Salt Creek, and South Fork Salt Creek, and then a little bit just overland flow right around the lake. So there's this huge watershed of 440 square miles where Anywhere there's bare soil, it has the potential to get washed into the stream. And our watershed is very hilly and the soils are highly erosive. Um, But we're also lucky in that over 84% of our watershed is forested. And intact forest does a great job of protecting soil. There's still going to be some erosion. It's um, still going to happen to a certain extent, but it's a lot less than if you're getting in there and you're clearing out the land, uh, you're exposing that bare soil. And so that's the reason why we really, we encourage keeping forests intact. We encourage conservation practices on farms that minimize tillage and um, increase the use of cover crops so that there's plants on the ground year round, being really careful about development, trying to really 
minimize that sediment movement. According to the Lake Monroe Watershed Management Plan, 38,733 tons of sediment enter the lake annually, and 3,037 tons exit the lake, leaving 35,696 tons stored in the lake. Michelle Cohen, Executive Director of the Lake Monroe Water Fund, explained that reducing the amount of incoming sediment would increase the lifespan of the reservoir. Well, that uh, is the natural thing that happens with reservoirs, which I'd be remiss if I didn't say that this lake is a reservoir. It was created by humans. It's not natural, Um, right? So filling in of a reservoir is a phenomenon that happens over time. Yeah. The goal is to stretch out that time period as long as possible. And so reducing the amount of sediment that comes in will help do that. Along with sediment runoff, manure and septic leakage pose a threat by contaminating the watershed with E. coli. According to the management plan report, quote, while E. coli does not appear to be a current concern in Lake Monroe, it was detected at levels above the state standard of 235 colony forming units per 100 milliliters and 33% of the monthly samples of South Fork Salt Creek and 25% of monthly samples of Middle Fork Salt Creek. No exceedances were measured in monthly samples of North Fork, Crooked Creek, or the Lake Monroe Outlet, end quote. They reported that livestock was observed at 44 sites, which was 19% of the total observed sites. More specifically, livestock with free access to streams were observed at 17 sites. They detailed that the livestock operations tended to be small, with the larger operations taking place in the Middle Fork and South Fork sub-watersheds, where the E. coli levels were found to be higher. They reported that the livestock consisted of a variety of animals, including cows, horses, goats, and donkeys. It also noted that there are at least two exotic animal farms in the watershed. In addition to animal fecal contamination, the Lake Monroe Watershed Management Plan report looked into septic system leakage, one of the primary concerns being older septic systems failing and contaminating the watershed. Quote, septic system failure is likely to increase in frequency as systems age. BCRSD, also known as the Brown County Regional Sewer District, reviewed septic system records in Brown County and estimated that 50% of the 7,700 septic systems in Brown County were installed prior to 1990. Assuming this is true throughout the watershed, 4,548 septic systems in the watershed are over 30 years old, and the average septic system life expectancy is 25 years. Proactive education and outreach can help households and businesses identify and address septic system issues promptly, protecting water quality in streams and water bodies throughout the watershed, end quote. In Monroe County, the Health Department had 17 sewage discharge complaints on file within the Lake Monroe watershed at the time the report was completed in 2022. The management plan report suggested that this underrepresents the septic failure rate since the Health Department relies on complaints to identify leaking septic systems, saying, quote, Additional failing systems may be undetected because they have not caused ponding or odor issues that impact neighbors, end quote. Another threat to the water quality in the region are PCBs. According to reporting done by writer Michael Glab in the Limestone Post, researchers and activists discovered that the Westinghouse Corporation was responsible for the dumping and runoff of millions of gallons of PCBs, or polychlorinated biphenyls. 
PCBs have since been identified to have a range of toxins, carcinogens, and other harmful effects. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency banned the use of PCBs in 1979. In 1983, three sites in Monroe County appeared on the EPA's national priorities list, Bennett Stone Quarry, Lemon Lane Landfill, and Neal's Landfill. Michael Glab reports that if most of Bloomington, including the Westinghouse plant, were a part of the Lake Monroe watershed, the lake would have been a hotspot for PCBs. Instead, the vast majority of PCB runoff flowed southwest outside of the Lake Monroe drainage basin. Maggie Sullivan, watershed coordinator for the Friends of Lake Monroe, discussed the history of Bloomington's PCB problem and described where the runoff went. So it's important to keep in mind that there's always people upstream and downstream anywhere you are. And we're lucky that we're pretty far upstream in our watershed. And when you look at the city of Bloomington, Bloomington takes its water out of Lake Monroe, but then it discharges its wastewater into Bean Blossom Creek to the north and into Clear Creek, which goes into Salt Creek below the dam going south. And so we are not putting our water back into Lake Monroe. And that is uh, a good thing, particularly because here in Bloomington, we have this historic issue with PCBs. Um, This was in the 50s and 60s. Westinghouse was using PCBs as part of their manufacturing capacitors, electronic equipment. And people didn't understand back then how um, unhealthy they were. They're carcinogenic. They're very persistent in the environment. They don't break down. Um, And so a lot of it was, you know, they'd, when they cleaned the factory, they would wash all that stuff down the drain and into the sewer system. And so it went through the sewage treatment plant um, and then on into mostly Clear Creek and Lower Salt Creek. So when you look at the maps of where the PCB concentrations are high, there are places in Bloomington, like landfills. There was also an issue with people would take the capacitors home and dump out the oil. Uh, Again, not understanding that that was a really bad idea. So you've got pockets of contamination in different places. But a lot of it is concentrated in that wastewater stream. So it was the Winston-Salem sewage treatment plant is not there anymore because it had such a high concentration of PCBs that it was shut down uh, in order to remediate it. And they built another sewage treatment plant uh, down the Dillman wastewater treatment plant. And so that area and all down Clear Creek and then Salt Creek, and then that flows into um, the White River down by Bedford. And so Bedford has been dealing with a lot of the PCB issues. I think they also had some manufacturing down there as well. I'm not sure. You double check me on that. But a lot of the issue, you know, there was an awful lot of cleanup in Bloomington, don't get me wrong, but it didn't impact Lake Monroe. And it did impact communities further south, further downstream from us, just because of the way our wastewater is disposed of. Even after it was treated, the PCBs were something that was hard to get out of the water. City of Bloomington Utilities Director Vic Kelson says that PCBs were never found in Lake Monroe. However, he said that PCBs went further downstream due to the fact that most of Bloomington is not in the Lake Monroe watershed. Uh, the PCB plants, the, or the treatment plants that are still operating, yeah, those are they're monitoring it all the time. 
I don't think we test our drinking water for PCBs. PCBs were never found in Lake Monroe. So, uh-huh. and, and, uh, and their disposal has been prohibited for a long time. So, but we don't have that in Lake Monroe. In fact, we didn't have it in Griffey either. Well, that's probably because most of Bloomington is not in the Lake Monroe watershed. Exactly. Yes. So it's going farther downstream if there is any soil runoff the, of PCB. Yes, that's right. Uh, oh. And if uh, and the Westinghouse is still operating treatment plants at a couple of locations yeah. in town. And they, they collect their data there on a regular basis. One of those three sites, the Bennett Stone Quarry, was up for discussion during a Monroe County Commissioner's meeting back in August of 2021. Indiana University Associate Professor in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs, specializing in environmental toxicology and chemistry, ecological and human health effects of pollutants and chemicals and risk communication, Diane Henschel presented on the risk of opening up Bennett's Quarry to the public as a park. Henschel was contracted by the commissioners to investigate whether or not the quarry still had a hazardous level of PCB contamination. There is a question right now about buying some property that surrounds um, one of the very recently delisted Superfund sites in Bloomington or in the county for this particular one. And I think I'm relevant, and I think I was asked because I'm both a risk assessor and a toxicologist, and because I've been participating in some of the citizen oversight of what's going on with these sites since pretty much I got here. Um, So I participated in the Citizens Information Committee meetings um, and discussions from the early 90s. So I was asked to look at the Bennett's Quarry as a possible park project and think about potential health concerns. And I brought in two of my current or former students to help out. Henschel explained that PCBs are trapped in the limestone bedrock and because of our karst topography, which is, according to the National Park Service, the, quote, type of landscape where the dissolving of the bedrock has created sinkholes, sinking streams, caves, springs, and other characteristic features, end quote. It is not possible to completely get rid of PCBs. So this is, uh, CBS is one of the PCB contaminated sites. There are still PCBs in the bedrock. You cannot get rid of PCBs from our bedrock. Our bedrock is karst limestone, which is full of crevices. It's kind of like a very cracked Swiss cheese. And the PCBs are in there and there's never been any consideration of trying to get them out because the only ways to get them out would actually just push them further around into the bedrock and spread them out farther. So the PCBs are there and stay there. And um, as a result, any evidence that I've ever seen says that we have, at least at some of the other sites in Bloomington, PCBs continue to wash out of our bedrock during flood times, so post-rain. Um, In addition, there's a host of quarries. There's quarries literally on every single uh, property. The quarries are pit quarries, so they tend to have steep sides. They are not walk-in quarries. Um, And most of them, as far as we can figure out, are filled with water. Henschel explained that flooding in the region is likely to increase and with it, release PCBs in the bedrock. We were asked to give current to give our opinion, our professional opinion of what the potential hazards are. 
considering the park visitors, the park employees, and we also considered the surrounding residents. So recognizing that the PCBs are still in the bedrock, washes out in the flood. The other thing that we want to point out is that we are in a part of the country and in fact in a part of the county that um, does have FEMA 100-year flood zone. And in fact, the 100-year flood zone is this wonderful quadrant down here is listed under FEMA as a FEMA 100-year flood zone. And should anybody be surprised, we are increasing our flood likelihood and our precipitation, and this is going to continue over time. So flooding is going to get worse. And so flooding could spread from that 100-year flood zone onwards. Um, the other point is that any construction activity surrounding the site is likely to, as far as I can figure out, um, jar additional PCBs out of the bedrock or move the PCBs around. It's been very difficult to find data specifically on PCBs in karst. There are, there's a small amount of data on other contaminants, uh, volatile organics in karst, um, and that indicates that, yes, indeed, the vibration that's transmitted through construction activities such as buildings or road activity, road building activity does affect and transmit to bedrock and can affect what's in the bedrock. She explained the predicted risk of exposure for residents living nearby, park employees, and park visitors. Henschel suggested that anyone pregnant or nursing should avoid the site. All right, so PCBs for park visitors. We think that um, the PCB exposure is pretty low for temporary visitors. My personal opinion is if I were pregnant, I'd probably not go more than maybe once and probably not go at all because uh, embryonic exposure is the most sensitive stage and I probably wouldn't wanna increase my exposure to chemicals, especially something that's known to affect development like PCB. So it's low, it's, it's, there's no, it, it by no means as far as we can figure out is likely to hit that um, a hazard concern level for non-cancer or cancer, um, but, also recognizing that that exposure is effectively on top of everything else everybody's exposed to. Um, but there is some exposure, especially post-rain. And we could, and I don't know why I can't get this back again, we could explicitly smell PCBs when we were there kind of down in this area. So, and we were there post-rain in, the, in the spring. So there's, and, and there's also notes of a, um, PCB odor from another company that came through. So, so we are concerned about the possibility for accidents for the from the quarries, as any swimming situation is uh, is a potential concern. And right now, there's not a whole lot of access to these sites. Hunter Valley Road is, you know, dead ended, and not a whole lot of people come through. But if these sites were made more accessible, we think that there's a possibility for the likelihood of both more visitors and more homeless to be there. Um, as far as a park employee, they'd be there full time. Again, the calculations are still within reasonable for exposure to the PCBs, but we still think it would be better if the park employee were not pregnant or nursing. 
In terms of the surrounding residents and particularly the people that live north, um, there are likely to be some PCBs in the fish continuing over time. If you are one of those people that like to fish in the creek and eat the chub, then you are likely being exposed to PCBs. If you walk along the creek, uh, especially post rains, you are likely being exposed to some levels of PCBs. At this point, the amount is probably not a whole lot, but it is something to consider whether or not there are concerns about it in the future with additional flooding and additional washout. Sullivan also touched on the PCBs and said that Monroe County's karst geology makes it hard to track the movement of chemicals underground. She described how this makes it difficult to determine the presence of PCBs. Much of Monroe County has what we call karst geology. And that means that we've got limestone bedrock and limestone will erode, water erodes limestone over time. So under, underground, there's all these little channels and caves. And, you know, we've got sinkholes in this area. And that's basically where there was a cave that collapsed and made a sinkhole. So it's very hard to track the movement of chemicals through karst geology because there's all these little pockets of actual open space underground, as opposed to if you're... Uh, bedrock geology is sand and gravel. You know how things are going to move more or less. And so one of the issues with things like PCBs that are trapped in a karst geology is there might be pockets of it that is sitting in little pools underground. And then when the groundwater table rises, it can wash those out. But then the groundwater drops again and some of it's left behind. So you can have these bursts of chemicals that appear based on the water movement. And groundwater is connected to surface waters, connected to storms, and so it all, all ties together. So that makes it really hard to predict and to evaluate if you've got a chemical spill like PCBs. Is it gone? Maybe until the next flooding, or maybe it's totally gone. It's, it can be really hard to make that call. So the other story I wanted to tell is I was talking about the Winston-Salem treatment plant had these PCBs accumulating in it, and EPA said, okay, we got to shut this down. You guys have to build a new tre treatment plant. And so the city looked at a variety of potential options, and one of the ones they looked at was putting a sewage treatment plant here near the dam of Lake Monroe. And... Many people speculate that there was a lot of support for that because it would have allowed sewer lines on either side of the lake, which would have allowed a lot more development right near the lake. Um, there was also the issue that they needed to have a very large, I think it was a 10-inch diameter pipe to collect all the sewer sewage from the city and get it to this treatment plant. And because we have this bedrock that's relatively shallow, they couldn't figure out how to put it underground, so the proposal was to put this pipe in Clear Creek and run it down Clear Creek to the wastewater treatment plant. And uh, some, a lot of people stepped in to intervene and say this is a terrible job, a terrible idea. We should not do this. Charlotte Zitlow being one of the leaders, she was also very involved in opposing the PCB incinerator project. So I think it's really interesting to think about how individuals in the community can make a huge role in how community de decisions are made that have huge implications years down the line. In addition to PCBs, the management plan report shared findings from the City of Bloomington's Utilities 2020 Annual Drinking Water Report. 
which states chemicals such as barium, atrazine, hexachlorocyclopentadine, diethylhexylphthalate, nitrate, lead, and copper have been found at low concentrations in the water supply. They attribute the presence of atrazine to runoff from herbicide used on row crops and attributed the presence of hexochlorocyclopentadine and diethylhexylphthalate to non-point source pollution, for example, fertilizer, septic systems, sewage, or erosion of natural deposits. As for the lead and copper levels, the report found, quote, lead and copper were also detected in the drinking water in all years. Copper levels ranged from 0.017 parts per million to 0.037 parts per million, well below the EPA regulatory limit for drinking water of 1.3 parts per million. Lead levels range from 4.9 to 7 parts per billion, with an EPA action level of 15 parts per billion and a target of 0 parts per billion. Lead and copper were both attributed in the annual report to a combination of corrosion of household plumbing and erosion of natural deposits. End quote. According to Glab's reporting, the lake was originally designed to last 100 years. Vic Kelson said he believes the lake will last beyond its predicted 100-year lifespan. However, he notes the reservoir won't last forever. A lot of times people will talk about the life of a lake based on what they think sedimentation rates will be sure. um, until it's filled up enough that you probably can't use it very much anymore. I don't know that the 100 years really means 100 years. Uh -huh. um, if I look at the intake, we actually had divers at the intake a year or so ago uh, because we're getting ready to replace the bar screens at the at our intake. The, they keep things like fish and oh. sticks and things like that out of the pumps. But the divers didn't see a lot of evidence of of significant siltation at the intake structure uh -huh. itself. But upstream of there, upstream in the Morse Creek drainage, uh, you do see it. So I don't know what that means. Um, what it means to me is that no reservoir will be there forever. Maggie Sullivan agreed that the 100-year lifespan of Lake Monroe might be misleading. In any case, she said the longevity of the lake should be a prime concern. People talk about Lake Monroe only having a 100-year lifespan, and that's that's kind of a, a misnomer. The way it works is when you have a big engineering project like that, you come up with a time span and you look at your costs over the lifespan of that structure. And so 100 years is a pretty common one for that. But as I, I think was in the Michael Glab article, from someone from the Army Corps of Engineers was talking about if you properly maintain a structure, it'll last a lot longer than that. Uh, it is an important thing to think about. This is a constructed lake and there is infrastructure that has to be maintained for it to stay a lake. And I think we as a species have a hard time thinking long term. So, you know, 100 years kind of sounds like a long time. But then when I tell you it's been 60 already, it's like, oh, oh, wait, no, this is starting to feel real. Tune in next week to hear more about Lake Monroe, how healthy it is and how long will it survive. To read the full article written by Michael Glab and photography by Anna Powell Denton, visit limestonepostmagazine.com. To submit feedback to WFHB, you can email deepdive at wfhb.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 802-552-3483. Up next... 
Survey says scam on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on the WFHB local news. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Survey says? That's a catchphrase from a long-running TV game show called Family Feud. Maybe you've seen it or turned it off. I have. Well, these days, there are a lot of surveys going around on the Internet, and some of them are very nasty scams in very sophisticated packaging. For instance, you can get an email that supposedly comes from Apple asking you to complete a survey and in return offering you a Samsung TV for only $1. It's colorful, it's well-written, it's exciting, and it's a total rip-off. You are challenged to complete a survey within a time limit, and when you win, as you most certainly will, you are asked to go through a verification process to claim your prize. All you have to do for that is to give away all your personal information, including your credit card number, expiration date, and security code. Surveys that supposedly come from big retailers, like Costco, look totally legitimate and use the company's logo. You get an email saying you've been selected to join a loyalty program, or some such phrase, and get credits or discounts or freebies, and all you have to do is complete a survey form which requires all your personal information. There are phony surveys about COVID vaccines, which do not come from the vaccine makers. On the other hand, there are real survey websites that really do collect useful information, and some of them really do offer some kind of payment. So how do you tell the real ones from the phonies? Only a fraudster will ask for your credit card info, your bank account info, your social security or Medicare number, or the password to an online account you already have. Beware of any deal which offers something free, except that you have to pay something for it, like shipping costs. If free isn't free, it's a scam. If an email comes from an email service like Gmail or Yahoo, instead of a company website, watch out. On a website, look for information about the company, a way to contact them, and a privacy policy, and information about how they use the information they collect. If those things aren't there, forget about it. Before you take any survey, do a search for that website or survey name and the words scam or reviews or complaints. As always, if there's misspellings or bad grammar, that's a flare-lit tip-off that it's coming from someone whose native language is not English. If the website is not secure, if there's no HTTPS in the address, or if it simply doesn't work very well, just go away. And finally, remember that real surveys can't afford to pay a lot of money to a lot of people. The old saying applies here. If it looks too good to be true, it probably is. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. 
Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break.